0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest What the Fuck Were You Thinking edition. It's Wednesday, April 12th, 2017. On today's show, Colossal is a, it must be said, a colossally weird mishy-mashy of a high, low-concept movie. It stars Anne Hathaway as an American woman who discovers, much to her surprise and ours, that her own bodily movements determine the movements of a giant Godzilla-like creature destroying Seoul, South Korea. I would have loved to have been at that pitch meeting. And then we finally review review a Comedy Central gem now that its beloved run is over. But better late than never, we discuss its cringy genius. And finally, Dana and Julia, I would say that we strive every week to come up with a title that uh, covers all three topics. And our title this week throws a giant tarp in my estimation over all three with room to spare. Pepsi-Cola, What the fuck were you thinking? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And uh, of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, Steven.
0: Uh, The three of us, if I'm not mistaken, have not done a show together for weeks now. It's been a long time.
1: Yeah, we've had like a a spring break situation and a rotating cast. It's
2: so nice to be back with you It's a solid month. A solid month. Heartbreak. uh, But yeah, it's super nice to be back. It was fun to do the political gap test last week, though I recommend it. If there's ever a swap again, one of you guys should head over there.
1: uh, And it was very fun to have David on last week, but we missed you.
0: Okay, Dana, wait for it. You might want to like kind of brace yourself. Maybe assume that that kind of fetal crouch when an airplane is going down into the ocean, but I'm about to compliment you. <laughs> <laughs> you I I can't your your importance to this show, your centrality to it is so important that I can't I can only come up with two competing metaphors to describe it. You're both the kind of gravitational center around which the whole thing coheres and you're the straw that stirs the drink right so those two completely cancel one another out so really it's no compliment
2: (laughs) now i'm picturing a cocktail strangely clinging to a revolving (laughs) straw but i'm still very honored for the kind words (laughs)
0: Uh, all right should we talk about these uh these uh what the fuck subjects hey why not Okay, let's do it. A colossal stars Anne Hathaway as a New York City wastrel whose problems with drink and a patience-challenged boyfriend lead her to return to her childhood home, a kind of rural nowhere we're meant to take it to be. There she discovers to her horror that her own physical movements cause a monster to appear in Seoul, South Korea, a giant Godzilla-like creature. Whose wantonness in a strange way, whose city destroying wantonness in a strange way echoes her own. And what follows is a very peculiar movie indeed a high concept, low concept, sobriety and therapy parable, a bizarre genre picture beneath which lies a would be serious exploration ha- uh, about kind of the relationship of our rage to our boredom and self loathing. Something, I think, I don't know. We have to listen to a clip and then talk about it, both of which I'm dying to do.
1: Yeah, and we should say before we listen to the clip so, this is the moment where Anne Hathaway's character has discovered that her bodily movements control the monster, and she is revealing those powers to the three dudes she started hanging out with back in her hometown.
0: Holy shit. All right, it's back. It's, you know, see it? Yeah, I got it. Is it there? The giant monster, yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) Gloria, you got to see this.
2: What is it doing?
0: It's dancing.
2: Is dancing like.
0: Holy shit. <laughs>
2: uh, it stopped. <laughs> ah! Hi, assholes! Mwah. I'm blowing you ki- I'm blowing you kisses. Whoa. Oh.
0: What the? Okay, how? How? Wait, wait. This isn't happening. No, no, no. This is not happening. This, this is one of those practical joke apps. This is a joke. But you know, it's I a still joke. I really
2: like dancing, so uh, can you guess which film this is from, huh?
0: All right, Dana, got to start with you. Uh, Did this movie make you uh, homesick for being a film critic?
2: Uh, In a way, because I would have liked to write about what a failure I think it was. It's a really, really cool concept. I agree with that. But every single review I read after seeing the movie seemed to be content with just simply that. This is a great premise. There's something vaguely feminist about the idea of a woman controlling a monster. And then let the movie off the hook for all of its to me, not only enormous, enormous plot holes, which with a high concept movie like this really matter, right? That the strange cosmological universe that makes Anne Hathaway control a monster in Soul is never explained. And when it finally is an extremely disappointing reveal, but also just on a moral level, we can get into it. I just this this movie kind of repulsed me in the end, although I do think it's a neat idea.
0: Oh, wow. Dana Stevens kind of repulsed. Uh, Julia, what about you? Attraction, repulsion? What What do you feel here for
2: I- I'm for glad
1: that Dana is bringing the moral hammer, as is her want, because like this movie keeps it's like a shape-shifting beast it you think it's going to be one thing you think it's like sweet home Alabama kaiju and like she's gonna like realize (laughs) that her you know (laughs) drinking ways and her stupid British boyfriend were bad and she's gonna like fall in with her childhood sweetheart and find a truer purer, less monster stomping way to be a woman in America and then it turns out her hometown is fucked up and the people there Mm. are cruel and uh, it becomes like a sort of twisted emotional um, thriller in, in ways that I won't describe the specifics of. Um, but I did not see that coming. And just mm-hmm. the sheer, it's so rare to see something so unusual that I f- just felt gratitude for like, yay, they made something that that I couldn't predict the beats of at all. And then mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's good. Like, I'm not sure the novelty of the experience of seeing this movie that that plots its arc so strangely equates with a good aesthetic or cinematic or moral yeah. experience. Yes. But then I kind of didn't care because it was, like, sort of short, and I think her performance is really winning, and it, it just, like, it was not... It was not a predictable rom-com, and it wasn't a predictable monster movie, and it wasn't a predictable addiction movie, and mm-hmm. it just had a, sort of this strange courage of its own twisted convictions, and I respected that about it.
2: Yeah, no, that is that is all true.
1: Uh, no, I, right, exactly. I fall, I fall, kind of. I agree with
0: both what both of you said, and and I kind of fall where Julia falls. I will say that we have seen something like it, oddly enough. My favorite overlooked movie of the past year, 2016, was A Monster Calls. Yet another Spanish director hiding a serious sort of human-scale drama beneath a monster, like a kind of genre uh, uh, CGI-invoked monster movie. Uh, I thought that that was a far superior movie. I mean, it was maybe a little too didactically in control of its parable, and this one just gets really out of control. Let Let me just say briefly... How? I mean, I, l- let me put it this way. I mean, this movie couldn't have been more targeted to me in that it features a blithe, sloppy, beautiful, and in love with the bottle Anne Hathaway. You sort of have me at that premise. Um, the problem is, it, it in order for a movie like this to work, because of the utter weirdness of a... An Amer- a wanton American woman with a problem with men and alcohol. Her wantonness in America somehow is echoed in Seoul, South Korea. This bizarre global entanglement unfolds. I think you have to be really in control of the material, or the movie just spins off as access, access. And this one did, because first you think you've got a wantonness parable about her wantonness that she needs to overcome. Then it suggests that the problem is kind of boredom and spectatorship because the bar in which she works becomes doubly busy because people just go there to watch the freaking monster on the flat screen TV and drink, right? And then it becomes really a parable about rural white rage or something. I mean, it kind of without giving anything away, the movie essentially escapes one character completely and all of the burden of recovering the past in a way that allows the monster to disappear, right, which is a heavy-handed allegory. All, all of that just gets scapegoated onto one character that isn't her and suddenly it's really not about her anymore. I mean that's that's the flaw of the movie in trying to make her heroic, they actually disburdened her of the you know of the of the weight of being heroic in some feminist way and the therapy and the sobriety parable are lost totally. I thought the first half of the movie was in some ways quite engaging um, and kind of in a bizarre way timely and and then the second kind of half or perhaps final third of it are disa- are disastrously bad like enough to kind of undo whatever affection i had for the first part of it dana it's i love i love an aggravated dana stevens and i sensed uh, your unresolved inner rage was coming to the surface uh thanks to this uh the conjuring powers of this movie so go i want to hear more
2: I mean, there are just so many. I will try not to spoil. I will just hint at some of the problems with the plot, and uh, and we won't. Unlike last week, I did like you guys' spoiler segment on S Town with that with the music playing underneath, but we're going to skip that this time. And I guess I would say that if the concept appeals to you and you want to see how Nacho Vigolando, the Spanish director, carries it off, sure, go see Colossal. But here come some of my problems right now. Okay, A, the world does not respond with nearly enough shock, horror, surprise at the fact that there's suddenly a giant monster that materializes in an otherwise realistic world. There's no sort of scientific speculation about what's going on. There's, I guess, some satire of the kind of YouTube-ization of the monster and that he gets a a following online or something like that. But there's not the sense that the world has been ripped open and the metaphysics of life as we know it have been changed and that people are dealing with that. So to me, it just seems like this movie is concentrating on the wrong thing in a way. I mean, okay, I guess that's where the monster is located in this boring small town in the U.S. But as for the moral problem that I alluded to earlier, I mean, in a show when we're about to discuss this Pepsi ad with Kendall Jenner that, you know, mobilizes race and all kinds of instrumental and kind of horrifying ways. Didn't it bother you guys that every Korean in this movie was literally a faceless person who's credited at the end of the movie as screaming Korean lady? I mean, it's about a disaster in Seoul that's being it's caused terrible. by... By Anne Hathaway's astral projection as a monster or whatever. (laughs) But we're much more concerned with whether Anne Hathaway is going to have that beer on that night when she's trying to kick the bottle than we are with hundreds, perhaps thousands of people being crushed by the foot of a giant monster. And uh, and I sort of thought that at some point in the movie, because as Julia says, there are so many tonal shifts, which I feel like the movie is not in control of at all. That there would be some moment when we went to Seoul and started to meet the families of crushed people or, you know, get some <laughs> sense that they had any experience besides being screaming hordes of people out of, yeah. you know, a, a 50s kaiju movie. And that never happens.
1: I'm loath to interrupt because this doesn't seem like the only bullet point on Dana's piece of paper. But just to respond <laughs> to this particular charge, I actually think, you know, so the, the two big metaphors that... I mean, I think, Steve, you limbed the three of them, one being the monster is her alcoholism and her uncontrollable life. The third being like, this is really turns into weirdly a movie about like white male rural rage, whether successfully or no. But the middle one is that I sort of think it's a metaphor for uh, American like imperialism slash, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, uh, ethnocentrism slash their capital. Like, I actually loved that Americans were just like, Oh, it's another show. You know? Yes. Like I thought I thought actually that was kind of remarkable and great about it because truly, when horrible things happen elsewhere in the world, some set of people feel horrible and donate to doctors without monsters or whatever. <laughs> but like um <laughs> Monsters but Without Borders, yeah. yeah. The sense of like, Oh, this is their problem and like who, and who's to watch gonna watch this electric yeah. train wreck next. Like I thought that was um not inaccurate, even though since the movie itself didn't have much more interest in the Korean, the crushed Korean populace than the people in the movie. That's the part. Yeah. That yeah. yeah. I'm not
2: saying every character has to be, you know, Doctors Without Monsters donator. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> the movie itself, I, I guess it gets this is what I mean about I feel like it's getting off easily in reviews is that a couple of people mentioned mm-hmm. a couple of critics mentioned, oh, yes. And there's a Savage satire of Americans' disconnectedness from, but the movie itself is disconnected from yes, the experience I, of those being crushed by the monster. In my right. Movie. I
0: mean, the only, the only, the only benefit of the doubt I might give it is this is not an American director. I mean, I know that that's a. It just seems to me a European director is probably somewhat more in control and conscious of satire directed against blithe Americans. Um, but that said, I mean, I'll give you just a, a just a gaping like drive eight, you know, a convoy of eight hundred trucks through a uh, plot hole, which is that they. The, the monster appears in the same neighborhood. In so, I mean, it is a premise of the movie that the monster appears in the same goddamn place every goddamn time, and they don't evacuate the goddamn neighborhood. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, why you know, is you there could, even
1: anybody on the street? Anybody?
0: I, why? Why? They, I mean, you, you might conceivably... I mean, if a 900-foot-tall, you know, kind of... Bizarre lizard-like, you know, monster appeared above any city, major <laughs> city in the world. You might expect they would evacuate the entire city, but maybe just the n- little Benlia in which the thing appears and stomps on cars and knocks over buildings. Why are there screaming hordes still there? I, I know I it's know
1: coming out man. of the river at like the, seemingly the same place every time. Yeah.
2: I guess yeah, and it's so, a busy shopping district. Hey, let's go out and shop. We might get crushed by a giant <laughs> monster foot, but <laughs>
0: maybe we'll fifty percent sale. I mean, it it, it just. It's just bizarre how thought out it seems in one respect, and how thoughtless it seems in another. Can we just quickly go around the table and give a kind of Anne Hathaway? You know our 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 current state of the Anne Hathaway ness. Um, did, did you like her in this movie? I mean, there's there's just, she seems to be. In, am I wrong, Dana, to think that Anne Hathaway is kind of suffering from permanent backlash in some undeserved respect?
2: Well, she's just one of those really, really divisive performers and always has been that there's the half a haters and it sounds like there's people like you that are just a a half an enthusiast in in anything and everything. Julia already heard me be, when I was trying to keep us from doing this as a topic, (laughs) Julia already (laughs) heard me be slightly snide about Anne Anne Hathaway, but I think she, if anything, saves this movie and is one of the things that makes it worth watching. Yeah, yeah, I think her performance is great. And I
1: think she's a great actress. Like, I think she tends to get knocked for the inelegant ways in which she pursues uh, big shot actressdom right now like mm. she's she's got a bit of the um trying too hard to hit the marks she she's not like coolly confident and cavalier about her performance of celebrity
2: right she has that drama major side that everyone mocks and to tell you the truth i have mocked it and i think in writing about les miserables and the subsequent oscar campaign in which she got her oscar for cry- crying snottily through her vocal solo you know i i saw that side of Anne hathaway but i also think that she can be super charming in something like devil wears prada i love her in a rom-com sorry if that reduces her massive range as an actress
1: yeah i don't know yeah. i i've always liked her as a performer even if i recognize But I'm not particularly appalled by the inelegant ways in which she pursues celebrity. Uh, It seems like that, you know, crying for celebrities doesn't seem like the most urgent thing for we as cultural critics or Americans to do right now, but it doesn't seem that easy to be one at the moment. And uh, the fact that she isn't very good at it kind of makes me
2: like her. Well, and this is a wonderful Um, role for her because it's a kind of rumpled, slightly bloated, like on the end, I mean, not physically bloated, but I mean, a puffy, alcoholic kind of version of the ingenue, the charming ingenue that she always plays. And in the opening scene with Dan Stevens, who plays her her British ex, you see her trying to leverage that rom-com charm and failing. In that sense, I think she's really wonderfully cast in this movie. But but this this movie just needed another pass through this the script. So it needed somebody to say, this doesn't make sense, and that doesn't make sense, and this character doesn't make sense. And you're pinning, as Stephen correctly pointed out, we won't say who, but one of the other characters ends up taking all the moral blame for what is in fact yeah, a morally complex of it, yeah. kind of problem. Exactly. And uh, and those problems could have actually been solved with better writing and thinking yes. through. And Absolutely. I'm sort of amazed that this Got launched in the state that it's in. Yeah, and the actor who played the
1: the actor who plays the character that ends up taking all the moral blame is poorly served because it's an it. There's there's a version of this movie where that role is as interesting and complicated as Mm -hmm, the one that Anne Hathaway plays, and it's sort of uh, the the it turns into a monster movie with just that character as the monster yes, and and, and that character ends up having as little range or interest as the like kaiju blob yes. that descends from the Be- sky beautif-
0: beautifully put that is the problem with the movie that said um i think i'm going to give it a, a kind of quavering wavering thumbs almost up uh maybe watch it on an airplane um we're certainly very watch it on an movie. airplane
1: 100 mm-hmm. percent, exactly 100%. it's like it more a- interesting d- than anything else on the airplane see it to keep the hope that people will make non-obvious movies alive and that someone will work hard enough on them to make them actually successful agreed
0: and, lo- and, yeah, agreed. and look at, at how much conversational blood we drew from the stone of this movie so go see it come to com slash culture tell us what you thought of it we're very curious all right moving on Before we dig in further uh, on our second topic, Julie, I know this is where we insert business, which we inevitably have, I'm sure, this week. What, what do you got?
1: Yes, several exciting points of order. First is that the Culture Gab Fest's first ever live show in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, happens next week on Wednesday, April 19th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hamilton. General admission is sold out, but there are still some standing room tickets and VIP tickets, which include a pre-show meet and greet and complimentary cocktail.
0: Wait, can... wait a second. Wait a second. We sold out in D.C.?
1: Apparently, that's what it says on the sheet in front of me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, I'm thrilled. I'm I'm really thrilled that we sold out. That's great news.
1: A few more live shows for listeners to be aware of. Slate is bringing two live shows, Represent with Aisha Harris, a frequent and wonderful guest on our show, and Trumpcast, the podcast dedicated to all things Trump, to the SVA Theater, a wonderful venue in New York, as part of the Tribeca Film Festival. Represent's show will be on April 24th at 6.45 p.m. and Trumpcast on April 30th at 8.15 p.m. Slate Plus members, you'll get 25% off your tickets to these shows and all festival screenings and events. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and more information. We also have a completely gobsmackingly exciting announcement uh, that we finally get to tease on air. Uh, We are coming to Australia we will be the first late podcast to perform in Australia and and Fuck, I have to learn how to pronounce Antipodean <laughs> before we do this. Podcast extravaganza. We are coming to both Sydney and Melbourne. We'll be part of the Sydney Writers Festival with a live performance uh, of our show on saturday may 27th in sydney and then we will also go to melbourne and do a show there on wednesday may 31st we'll put links to where you can buy tickets to those shows on our show page this week slate.com culture fest and we also already have a special guest booked for our melbourne show steve why don't you reveal who our guest will be
0: uh the other day i played um the song to by courtney barnett um for my 11 year old daughter and it was, I swear to God, not one bar into the song. My daughter in the backseat of the car leaned back and said, oh, that voice. Courtney Barnett, who I, I just, I, I think the world of her music Um, is coming on our show in Melbourne, which is to me just, I'm going to be as starstruck as I've ever been. So the segment will be terrible, but she'll be great. Um, I, I love her music. She's, pu- she's We're you know, coming she out-
1: thousands of miles to do a mediocre segment. Get psyched, <laughs> <Yes>. guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, get psyched. But but Courtney Barnett, I mean, could sing the phone book. And and I mean, it, it's, it's thrilling that she's coming on our show. So we're very,
1: very psyched. It's going to be great. We'll have details on our show page this week about where you can get tickets. Hello, Australian listeners. Uh, we are very excited to encounter you all. On Slate Plus today, we're going to take advantage of Dana's return for an Esprit d'Escalier segment in which we revisit last week's show. Dana will offer some thoughts on uh, her early listenings to S-Town. I had a couple uh, Esprit d'Escalier moments about both our S-Town conversations and our Pence conversation. And Steve, surely you regret something and have something to say. All right. So we will discuss that. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus. There's also a new way to join Slate Plus, which is through our app. If you download the app, you can get Slate Plus free for 90 days. Uh, Just download it at slate.com slash app and you will get all the benefits of Slate Plus, the bonus segments, the ad-free podcasts for three whole months. It's definitely the easiest way to get our bonus segments every week and the ad-free podcast feed. So experience the magic of Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. Okay, on to Review. Review
0: stars the comedic actor Andy Daly as Forrest McNeil, a middle-aged, normcore, sort of dressing, nerdy guy with a fantastically low EQ who stars in his own TV show called Review. It's a meta meta-mockumentary if you will. He's like a kind of human quora. Viewers write in and ask him what X is like, or doing X is like, or being X, and he goes and does an absurd and dangerous thing uh, that no normal uh, human being would subject themselves to voluntarily. It is a very dark and funny satire in which Forrest, over the course of its three seasons, uh, destroys his life in favor of this schlock, pseudo-reality TV show. It's come to its end of its run. I loved it. I can't wait to talk about it. I've been binging it over the last 24 hours. Without further ado, let's listen to a clip.
2: Anastasia writes, (laughs) I want to get a puppy. Aww. (laughs) But my mom says we can't because we already have a dog. What's it like to put a pet to sleep? Oh, boy. You know, Forrest, you could just sing a lullaby to a cat.
1: Hmm, I could do that, <laughs> but then I would also have to kill it somehow because that's what Anastasia wants. I'm off to put a pet to sleep, meaning death. <laughs>
0: The only pet I've ever had was a golden retriever that I acquired for my family in my review of stealing. His name was Sergeant, and there was no way of knowing how old he was. If he had fallen ill, I would not have known because my ex-wife Suzanne did not allow me into the new home she and our son live in. What do you want? But if I was going to put a pet to sleep, Sergeant was the logical place to
1: start. (laughs) I'm just seeing how things are going. I've I've been uh, thinking about the dog lately.
2: (laughs) What's the review?
1: What's the review?
2: What is it like? What's it like to be a veterinarian? <laughs> I mean,
1: I, I don't.
0: I mean, we're laughing, right? I mean, I don't like to. There's no. There's no ultimate reason to compare one thing to other things. I will say that julia this just tickled some funny bone that had been dormant with me since i used to really love watching reno 911 late at night with the case of the munchies i i did not expect to love this show as much as i did i'm really into it i'm gonna watch all of it uh i've watched a half dozen or more episodes in the last 24 hours it, it's just there's no getting around how it's weird and we'll get into what's weird about it but there's no getting around how fucking funny it is right
1: am i right I think it's really funny. We had been planning to talk about this a couple weeks ago and then decided we wanted to talk about Chuck Berry's death instead and also thought it would be great to have Dana, our uh, resident person who writes weekly <laughs> criticism. <laughs> the Andy Daly of our podcast. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that that's the appropriate comparison, but it'll uh, be fun to have your perspective on the show as well. So I'm dying to hear what... Dana thinks of this portrait of a critic as a very very
2: bleak soul. It's so dark. I mean, I agree with you, Stephen, that it's very funny um and that it does so much with his concept in a way this is the opposite of colossal where the concept is pretty mm-hmm. simple but they take it to such fascinating places and there's such moral weight to all the things that happen in the show yeah. um and yeah. and so and and the results of all of his his bad experiments stick around. So something that you start to realize a few episodes in is that the this, this slate doesn't get wiped clean after every no. review, right? If he yeah. breaks up his marriage, which happens, spoiler alert, very early on, I think it's the third episode of the whole show. Yeah, and then, kind of
0: over and over again. <laughs> right, and then he, he has he, to keep revisiting it. He's it up. Yeah. yeah,
2: everything he does, the repercussions stay with him, and I won't give away what all of those things are, but some of them involve James Urbaniak, who's hilarious as the show's producer, a small role, but a really pivotal one. Um, I'm not sure that I will watch this with your dedication, Steve, just because it's so dark. It's 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 yeah. ki- kind of mean. I mean, ultimately, I don't know what's going to happen in the last season. I know from even just hints of spoilers that I've read that things are going to get even darker. But um, but you know, this guy is pretty much beyond redemption by episode three of the series. So uh, so take it from there to decide whether you want to watch or not. As as to being a, a critic watching a show about this strange metaphysical form of criticism, this was very different than I expected in that respect. I kind mm-hmm. of thought that yeah. it would be a satire of critics and that it would be a a little bit like um, that the character would be a little bit like the comic book guy on The Simpsons, you know, Mm -hmm, some mm -hmm, guy in mm -hmm. front of a computer who thinks that his opinions matter and that we would be satirizing the current state of digital criticism or something. And it's really nothing like that. The show he appears on is not really the satire of any (laughs) existing show that you could imagine. And it almost starts to seem like apparently a fan theory started to develop, which Andy Daly in interviews has said is interesting, but was not, you know, the case was not the creator's intent. But the fan theory is that is that he's actually in purgatory, that the, the critic is mm-hmm. in purgatory and that all of these things he's doing are sort of moral tests to see whether he's going to heaven or to hell. And in which case, I think we all know where he would be headed mm-hmm. because he always makes the worst possible decision. Um, but so it, it it almost seems like it takes place more in a, I don't know, and it's a wonderful life kind of universe or something. I mean, sure. way less optimistic, but, you know, with that kind of sense of uh, the, this, this, this this man's daily acts standing for some sort of larger moral question and, uh, and and really has almost nothing to do with media critique.
0: I agree with that completely. Um, But I want to throw the question then to Julia, what it feels as though, I mean, I, I think of this as in some ways, almost perfectly realized comedy without also understanding what the object of its satire is precisely, which might be fine in a way. It's so specific to the psychosis of this individual and the comedic talents of the actor's playing him as someone who cannot assimilate to his own understanding the damage that he's doing to others around him in order to be this bizarre proxy for his own viewers. But you don't feel as though... I didn't feel as though it's a media satire, a Truman Show satire. I just, it, it just feels like itself in some way. And that was the one thing that flummoxed me about it. But I was laughing so hard I didn't care. I mean, it executes it, its bizarre premise uh, so perfectly and so darkly, and I very quickly. I love the supporting cast. Um, f- for his psychosis to play as real and consequential, you need the wife. Jessica Saint Clair is terrific as his wife. She's a great straight person in the show. His you know kind of slightly hatchet-faced, deadpan secretary. His weird, deadpan, Machiavellian producer Grant. They're all played and his doofus millennial intern are all played to perfection. I was laughing my ass off, but what is this show about? Julia, do you have an answer?
1: I do not have an answer. I'm sorry to, to punt on this one. I I will add to the list of supporting performances that are excellent uh, is the woman who plays his co-host for his, mm-hmm. for his yes, show. his show. Um and I'm glad we that the clip we played included the segment from the show where he accepts the assignment from the audience because I will say that the show I agree with you Dana that the that the show does not seem to be really satirizing television or media or reality TV or anything really like it's so particular to the 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 specificity and depth of the character that this guy has created that I'm not sure what the satire is of on the other hand I enjoy watching Uh, the film critic Sandy Kenyon when he does film reviews on Taxi TV, which is like the only time I watch any news television is in the back of Taxi TV. That's so
2: funny. I immediately turn off Taxi TV, and when I can't get it off, I'm very aggravated. I
1: almost always immediately turn it off, but every so often I find myself watching the film review of Sandy Kenyon, and the, uh, the delivery and sort of vibe of the show is so perfectly... That is kind of the like extreme middle brow review pitched with like that kind of sing song obviousness. Yeah, a
2: guy in a blazer. It's a very old world, almost like pre Roger Ebert idea of what a TV reviewer would be. Yeah, yeah. It's like
1: and Hathaway's character. Do do do. Like I can't I can't even quite get the rhythm, but he gets the rhythms of it so perfectly. So there's a precision in the in the type of thing that they use as the framework through which to give us this character. But again, that precision does not seem to suggest that the real target is critique. I mean, he also is someone who has no ability to. I mean, he's a zealot, right? He's so attached to his principles and his theory that um, devoting his life to trying the craziest things in order to convey what those things are like to an audience um and his focus on a distant audience as opposed to the immediate people in his life around him and their moral consequences like eh, maybe that's a metaphor for I don't know modern times and digital audiences but well, that just <laughs> feels like a stretch
2: like it's just the show it is just about a, him and like it's his, just kind of a it's a character guy, study yeah. it's a character study and what I mean if it's a critique is maybe the wrong word but if it's an exploration of anything it's an exploration of what you were just describing Julia as a a kind of fixation you know whether it's on career or fame or some kind of abstract idea of duty there's something that self, he's, yeah there's yeah there's something that this Andy Daly character Forrest McNeil is pursuing fiercely and, and throwing everything else aside for that ultimately we as the audience not even ultimately immediately we as the audience see is kind of meaningless and so it has this cosmological force almost the decisions it's that he weird. makes but that I, only happens yeah, if you keep on yeah. watching
0: it's true. It has it, it. It it the irony of the show is that it watching it has a cumulative force. Like the genius behind it is is as you say, Dana, is that what happens to him does not get erased episode to episode. So the the absolute path of destruction that he's cutting through his own life grows wider and larger as the show goes, even though he's completely incapable of cumulative experiential learning. Right. That that's kind of the central joke of the show. I mean. I, I just can't tell you how well executed the comedy is. You have to watch it yourself. I mean, the one in which he's asked, what is it like to believe a conspiracy theory? I mean, that's a tough one to pull off, but he you know, he loses himself in this paranoid psychotic fantasy that the makers of the show are trying to kill him. And the irony there, of course, is that in some bizarre way they are, they are using him as this human guinea pig for ratings in this utterly cynical way. And that, that was, I mean, James Urbaniak, who plays the, uh, Grant, the producer, is so deadpan and so funny in the scene in which um, Andy Daly's trying to explain to him how, in fact, he he's his enemy from an earlier life who was a woman who's had a sex change operation and is now posing as a producer and trying to kill him. I mean, for Andy Daly to bring the character realistically to that point of psychosis and then for urbaniac to respond to it as if it's real. I mean that it's like very hard to pull off. I mean it's just uh, the shows it kind of short circuiting my critical capacities it, it, because I like it so much, but without under, really understanding it, which is kind of a great and seductive place to be in with a, a work of you know popular culture. I mean, yeah I just recommend it highly. I guess so I'm going to peter out um in my in my comment by saying that.
1: Yeah, and I, I would put myself as between you and Dana in terms of not being quite sure I'll have the stomach. So it's a bit of a hard pill to swallow. But one one upside for us discussing the show after its series apparent series finale is uh, there's a limited universe of this show, for better or for worse. So if this sounds enticing to you, you can go gobble the whole thing up.
2: Yeah, it's around 20 episodes. I think right now, just where the world is at and where my head is at, I'm not going to dive in that deep because this is a very devoid of, mm-hmm. of sweetness and redemption kind of world. Yes. But I say that with with all admiration for the weird project that unlike the first movie we were talking about carries it all off
0: one other concluding piece of advice if you don't want to watch all 22 episodes what you and, and what you really want to do is watch 4 or 6 or 8 i i and you don't worry about it being spoiled which it hardly is i would watch the final episode of the show because it is a brilliant wrap up uh perfectly executed very clever okay show is review it was on comedy central now it's in various locations on the internet for a buck or so an episode uh, check it out really curious to know what our listeners uh, make of it um, facebook.com slash culture fest
1: all right moving on look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: All right, so we're kind of knocking around the internet trying to find the definitive version of the Pepsi ad. All I can say is that I went to YouTube and put in the letter K, and it auto-completed Kendall Jenner Pepsi (laughs) ad. And I got it as the first hit, eight million views. Um, I, in, you know, in case you haven't heard, after much derision, Pepsi Cola has withdrawn its ad featuring Kendall Jenner, in which she joins a resistance or possibly even Black Lives Matter style protest, only to hand a riot cop a Pepsi, thus bringing love and sunshine to our new fascist America. It it was just met with, uh, you know, a completely unyielding um scorn, and uh, Pepsi pulled it. But we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna join the conversation.
1: They really did start a conversation. That, sure that much, <laughs> that much is true. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, uh, all publicity is good publicity. I don't think so. But let's. Why don't we watch it simultaneously?
2: Okay. Let's just call out the sign slogans as we see them. Okay.
1: Kendall Jenner is being photographed for a fashion shoot while a protest goes by.
0: And she's wearing a kind of bottle blonde wig.
1: The signs say "Peace, Love, and Join the Conversation." <laughs> she looks Uh-oh. perplexed and intrigued.
0: K- Kendall's intrigued. An Asian man co-
1: is playing a cello and looking pensively outside. While drinking Ooh. Pepsi black.
0: Ooh, maybe the Ooh. cool kids He's are protesting. He's got a balcony. Do maybe something's going on. Join the conversation. I
2: love, I love that is. the two completely apolitical chicks having lunch are also drinking Pepsi. So it works if you don't care about oh, humanity as A Muslim as
1: well. photographer is very frustrated with her photo edit. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's she, got to get outside.
0: She's got to join it. She's got to videograph it.
1: Oh, he's bringing the cello to the protest. (laughs) Yep. There's a man with drumsticks. Oh. Oh, here we go. Gotta have a hip hop break. Some young black men are dancing while the cellists play. This this is
0: a really cool universe in which every single kind of music is highly specifically racialized according to uh, to consensus categories.
1: Kendall's Kendall's got dawning perception on her face that, oh, she nods at the cellist. He's like, come join the protest. She oh, rips off, off the wig her white wig. Throws it to the and black lady. Smears <laughs> off her shiny lipstick. Oh, some cops are staring stairs.
0: Oh Riot Cops. Wow, Things she, could get ugly she here. She feels
1: so free. She pulls a Pepsi from a bucket. She, she's getting she's surveilled of- by a cop.
0: She's kind of popping out of her white tea a little Wait, bit. Wait, how too. did her
2: outfit change without her ever <laughs> going and changing clothes? <laughs> oh, oh, she's handing she it to hands the police a Pepsi officer to the cop. He looks at it silence. He drinks oh it, and they cheer. Oh, America's healed. Everybody's so happy. Corn syrup, corn oh. syrup
0: healed a fractured American psyche.
2: The cops, <gasps> the cops just needed refreshment hey. all this time. Hey. Hug the for the, the cops. Look, hey. hey. Live
1: bolder. Uh, Live louder. Louder. Live for now.
0: Oh dear. <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean, it's so intrinsically self-satirizing, um, Julia. I where do you even begin with this? I mean, it's it's. <laughs> I mean, I guess where one where a lot of people's minds go first is the sheer. I mean the American corporation is nothing if not two things right it's like overstaffed with people whose only job is to protect the brand image of this otherwise completely fungible crap right right i mean whether you drink an RC or Pepsi or a Coke really comes down to the advertising right so it's just you know top heavy management with image management and consulting and the second thing is just don't fuck up in public right like that like just don't fuck up in public how did these two things come together and produce this completely tone deaf like 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 screamingly tone deaf time? well, well
1: ad? why i mean you know I, many of our listeners will know to have seen this and heard discussions of this before now but let's just Let's just stipulate a few of the ways in which it is tone-deaf before we get to the discussion of how such a thing could possibly happen. Okay. So among the things that are tone-deaf, the imagery of the ad seems to echo both Black Lives Matter protests and the Women's March and other anti-Trump protests. So they allude to very specifically political events that have very specific political causes, lamenting the violence done to Black men by members of law enforcement. Not just Black men, but people— largely black men by members of law enforcement uh, and the election of a very specific problematic human to the White House of the United States of America. And yet this protest is like extremely vague. All of the signs merely ask you to join an unspecified conversation. One of the lines in a slate piece pointing out the ad's problems wondered if the cops were expecting trouble from the notorious nothing in particular movement, which I thought was (laughs) a great line. Um, But uh, the, the notion that the opposition between cops at a protest and protesters is merely a misunderstanding that can be solved with a sugary beverage proffered by a model uh, under sells the complexity of the role of police in American life over the last three years, let's just say. Right. Um, Then there's the fact that the ad is very explicitly multiculti also seems to potentially include you know, people of different gender and sexual identifications, possibly based on the way that they're dressed. And yet, particularly racially, every single person representing a race seems to be doing something that is like somewhat stereotypically associated with their race, maybe less so the Muslim photographer girl, presumably Muslim headscarf wearing photographer woman, but like the Asian boy is playing a stringed instrument and the uh, black guys are doing some kind of street dancing style. Um, and then there is the third problem that this whole protest seems to exist for the moral awakening of Kendall Jenner. Like <laughs> the thing that's right. really great about it is that finally she woke up and noticed that there was a conversation to be joined. But then as soon as she did... She became the only person who could take any kind of action, even though the action was preposterous for all the reasons previously proffered. It just it just so I I, mean, I don't know am I missing any of the other ways in which this is offensive I, I mean, mean just I, just I, like the, the, generally the, I, co-opting politics to sell sugar I
2: mean this is the right. kind of thing that's been exactly. happening in advertising and has been noticed to be happening in advertising by critics of advertising for decades and so this must be a pretty extreme case of it for it to have provoked such mm-hmm. an outcry right that's I mean I was thinking point, about yeah. Thomas Frank and the way the stuff that he was writing mm-hmm. about in the late 90s early 2000s and the Baffler and kind of the co-optation of revolution and the more and 60s count, kind of idea culture, of revolution right. Right. right I mean that's yeah. like something that we know about, and yet it's impossible to watch this without your jaw dropping. When when the kind of story broke about this last week, it was I didn't know we would be talking about it on the show yet. And the main part that I had watched of it was a gif that was widely circulating of the moment when Kendall rips her wig off and throws it to the side, and the person who catches it, presumably a stylist for her shoot, is a black woman. I mean, it's, it's just the, the, it's the just... making that decision. Just some director at some moment saying, "Oh, somebody's got to catch Kendall's wig. How about you, honey?" I mean, what the fuck?
0: Right, and that, and it's just like it's like okay, setting aside the race and gender of the person who catches it for one second, because it's critically important to, to acknowledge what those are. You know, you're making an ad about Kendall Jenner getting woke. And her first gesture is to just throw something without looking confident that an assistant will. Catch it. I mean, that's a that's a fuck up. But then to have it be a black woman is just impossibly stupid. I mean, this only kind of reiter- reiterates what's been said already by quite well by Julia. But I mean, you know, the the notion that these protests are, in essence, a party, you know, of cool kid millennials and that, you know, I mean, you don't you don't sense even watching the ad on its own terms that what attracts her to the. Uh, protest is its substance in any way, shape, or form. It's just what the cool, interesting-looking kids are doing. Like it's just that it's photogenic and a party. But the second, well, thing and I would a say hot
2: is, Asian guy asks asks her to join it. She may have no idea to, what the conversation yes. is that she's joining.
0: <laughs> well, that's a very good point, right? And then nor um, do we. But, uh, but and the second thing I would say is that you know what's what's, what's what what's in a weird way reassuring about the ad is that. You know, you know, hypercapitalism is nothing if not reflexive, and its ability to co-op—I mean, this is the Thomas Frank thesis—is that not only its ability to co-op to itself all images and all impulses to, to, to eventually make serviceable to its own completely cynical and commercial ends— anything that happens out in the authentic world right even stuff that's posed against it right like like it's that reflexivity and looping quality by which it just takes into its own you know uh, 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 behemoth essence you know kind of anything that the culture produces it's weirdly reassuring when that breaks down and fails right like this is an instance I mean my problem with advertising for the last ten possibly twenty years is that very smart people who just aren't quite clever or funny enough to write for 30 rock or the Simpsons go into advertising and advertising is very I mean advertising is now as funny clever self-reflexive self-conscious um, as as normal programming was when I was growing up I mean the problem with advertising is that it's actually quite good right that that it's cynical purposes are served by people who are very very clever and very sensitive to what the psyche of the culture is. And in a bizarre way, it's just comforting to get thrown back in time to where, you know, advertisers are tone deaf at a step and completely fucking up. And in a weird way, I want to give some credit... To how organic the women's march and the Black Lives Matters movements really were, how authentic and how inassimilable to the aims of selling, you know, caramel colored sugar shit is, you know, really re- how unassimil- in- inassimilable to that aim they really
1: are. I totally think there was a better way to do this ad. I I disagree that the that those uh, causes are unassimilable. But oh, I'm not by saying it's capitalism. impossible. It's yeah, not but, impossible. But but, but I think that does get us to the initial question, which is like, how did this happen? How did Pepsi fuck up in Way and I think it's interesting to look at some of the um, the types of ads that that worked in this vein in the in the nineties. You know, there were sort of some there was like the Benetton style ad, which was just like throwing in the face of the presumed conservative white you know moral majority is a phrase from the wrong decade there, but like you know that that you could talk about AIDS in an advertisement or that you know that that. Um, Having a multiracial cast or whatever, you know, there's sort of the kind of in your faceness of an idea of multiracial modernity that were in some of those ads. And then there was the kind of like, uh, we're the rebel generation and the rebel generation buys this expensive product type stuff that was in some of the Apple marketing, right? There's presumably many other examples, but that set of boomer targeted Advertising was fundamentally nostalgic. Like it was based on nostalgia for a generational self-conception that had solidified and was trying to leverage that. I think the thing that makes this task trickier for a Pepsi that decides, hey, the radical cool thing for us to do right now would be to try and present ourselves and pitch ourselves as the brand of of a young generation is to attach itself to ideas about social movements that are like very currently politically live-wired, and still in flux, and I think the act- actually the thing that is most damaging here for Pepsi is the corporate impulse towards safety, which is like, let's do this ad, but let's do it in a Pepsi way where it's just kind of a generic protest. Like, you could, I think, actually make the business case. I mean, Dan Gross wrote a great piece for Slate trying to empathize with the poor ad, ad exec who greenlit this ad and what his or her thinking might have been. Um, and it, it does help you understand that mindset a bit. And there's also been some reporting about the fact that this was made in-house at Pepsi rather than through an agency and that agencies just have a much better you know whatever you think of their skills or talents they have a much better process for like not getting their clients in hot water and really thinking through the potential responses in a way that there maybe just weren't enough voices or enough different experiences in the room of many kinds like uh racial advertising wise and otherwise in the making of this ad it seems like it was the, the product of too cloistered a conversation in many respects but you know one point that dan gross made was People aren't drinking soda as much anymore. Like sugar is bad. Everybody wants their coconut water, which, by the way, is also just other sugar water, but it has less (laughs) sugar. Um, And, you know, or their vitamin, you know, just like soda itself is not cool right now. Like young people don't drink as much soda as previous generations did. So soda drinkers are getting older and dying, A, and B, older people drink Coke. Like Pepsi's always been the number two brand. It's always been the challenger brand. And it's often been a brand, you know, the Pepsi generation. They keep trying to make Pepsi identified with youth. So it's in keeping with the overall brand identity of Pepsi to go after a younger audience. But like, if they want to make a last ditch effort to convince youngsters to drink Pepsi, they should have gone all the way and like made it a real protest and not had Kendall Jenner in it or, you know, like, I think you could actually take something more like the Benetton approach of like, no, let's just take as a given... Like, let's 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 not have it conclude with a faux moment of carbonated peace with the cop. Like, let's actually just completely (laughs) own the idea that we're the protest soda. And they would have gotten more controversy and attention, which might not have been bad. I mean, presumably somebody somewhere in their account did the math on how many Pepsi drinkers are in red states versus blue states and who knows Which states drink more soda, but, you know, maybe the numbers weren't favorable for such a strategy. But like, I can imagine the version of this where they co-opt the current social movements much more smartly. And it's actually Mm -hmm. by being less risk averse rather than... More. Right.
2: I regard that moment that I talked about, as the video was unfolding, where you see the two chicks having lunch on the sidewalk, who clearly don't care about the protest, but are also drinking Pepsi, as almost like an act of insurance. It's like a little symbolic moment where Pepsi almost seems to be saying, even if you don't give a shit about joining the conversation, you can still you can have Pepsi <laughs> too. <laughs> you can live for drink now. Sweet brown water. Maybe
1: now is just brunch. Maybe <laughs>
2: now isn't politics to you. It's just, it's just, just you know, eggs. <laughs> mm. Should we talk about Pepsi's reaction after pulling the ad? Because that was a very bizarre corporate moment as well.
0: Uh, Remind us what it was.
2: So after pulling the ad, which I think happened after less than 24 hours because the outcry was so huge, Pepsi wrote a public apology kind of letter to Kendall Jenner. In other words, their corporate... I guess, you know, mea culpa for having made this preposterous ad was directed at the star of the ad who chose to be in it, presumably after understanding the entire content of it and got paid enormous amounts of money. And uh, and then there proceeded to be a protest about the corporate reaction, understandably, in my view.
1: To be fair, they apologized for the ad and for getting it wrong and to Kendall Jenner. For putting her in this position, as they said. I don't think that was their smartest move, although Kendall Jenner also has a fan army who... They probably want to have drink Pepsi. But like they didn't, they weren't just like, sorry, Kendall. They also apologized for that, just for accuracy.
2: (laughs) I just, I feel the people who are saying, I feel like there's a lot to be said for the argument that the apology to Kendall Jenner is complete proof that they don't get it and the same problem still exists in their corporate culture, right? Because it's kind of the the innocentization of of Kendall Jenner and turning her into the, the victim of some yes. sort of cruel advertising mm-hmm. executive.
0: Yeah. For concluding comment, I take some hope from this. I, I like living in a world in which young people feel a kind of authenticity that they believe is whether rightly or wrongly, is pitted against corporate behemoths who have no desire uh, other than to make a buck off of them. Um, I, I feel like that kind of oppositional relationship got kind of collapsed um, uh, and, and the powers of co-opting had got very cynical and very suave. With the I Kardashians,
2: love, a big force in that, right? I mean, I agree. the Kardashian family yes. being the people that you have to admire for their entrepreneurial spirit, even when they're doing Precisely utterly trashy right, things. right, Dana.
0: Absolutely right. And I, I love at least the possibility that the world is is able to give the middle finger to, to the to the um, admin. Uh, okay, so uh, we'd love to hear what you think of this. This is a, nothing if not an opinion generator. Facebook.com slash CultureFest, the inane Pepsi ad that's now.
2: Join the conversation. Join our, uh, join a real
0: conversation.
1: Inane really is the best word for it. And like, if you haven't seen it and you thought, uh, maybe I'll just skip this one, like, do yourself a favor. Find <laughs> it and watch it. It is it is a, an astonishing media experience. Put a pillow on
2: the floor so your jaw has something soft to hit when it <laughs> drops.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or dig a hole so it can fall all the way. <laughs>
0: the earth's core. All right, uh, moving on. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market auditory experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor.
2: Mm Hmm. What flavor are you holding?
0: Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful
2: Snapple near you.
0: Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana.
2: My endorsement this week is actually for a a person, a whole writer that that I'm very proud that we... Once fostered here at the Culture Gap Fest. So our former intern, Josephine Livingston, is on the culture staff at the New, New Republic now. She has a regular column that seems to be very roving critic, write on whatever you want to, Joe Livingston, and she's killing it. And so it just so happened that this week in our in our briefing document, in the in the research we were doing for the show, I came across a review of Colossal that she wrote for the New Republic. But she doesn't only write on film or even only on entertainment. Let me read some of the topics of her her last few columns. I think she's got about, I don't know, a couple dozen now but she's written on the figure of the flaneur, the French 19th century mm-hmm. city wanderer. She's written on David Lynch's early movies. She wrote on S-Town, the, uh, the podcast that you guys talked about last week. And she's written more generally on culture and media and all kinds of stuff. She's a medievalist by training, which is after my own heart, because that was my subject of study as an undergrad. But she mainly writes on just contemporary culture and whatever she comes across. She's funny. She's a wonderful writer. She has a great eye for detail and something about her. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm essentializing here, but something about her being not american writing about america it's like the john oliver thing there's something about that that eye from outside that gives it a certain freshness and wit that i just love so josephine livingston's writing in the new republic go joe
0: yeah we've had a i mean we've had a, a lineage now of interns who are smarter than the panelists on the show I mean, oh yeah no they, they all go on all, to do but...
2: like invent careers that didn't even exist before they're incredible
0: yeah, I mean, really, uh, yes. and Current and uh, intern Josephine included. Is, yes, uh, it was a remarkable um, intellect I have there in the booth. Um, Julia, what do you have?
1: I have an endorsement uh, which requires a disclaimer. So as I think I've announced on this show, I'm no longer talking about HBO shows because my husband now works at HBO helping make their shows. And so when you guys have discussions of them, I'm going to sit out and we'll have other guests. And like, you know, he works on the comedy side. He doesn't work on the drama side. But he's, he's, he's starting to get into the mix of the shows, and it just seems better for everyone if I don't talk about HBO shows. However, the endorsements chunk of the show is when I merely just say, what is the thing that I was most blown away by in the previous week? And I'm going to do something from HBO, which I feel fine about because my husband had nothing to do with this. He'd be happy for me to announce um, because it was all done before he started his new job. The final season of Girls is so good. And we talked about girls. Like I think the excellence of girls gets kind of buried in how complicated Lena Dunham is, and how controversial she is, and how many think pieces you have to read about her and her latest blunder and her latest very thoughtful uh, apology for the blunder and her general like yearning to be like she's she's a compelling public figure who is not without missteps uh, as as none of us are. And I think in in all of the noise about her in her newsletter and her Hillary boosterism, like she is just an extraordinary creator who is so at the top of her game. And the, I think I watched like the first season and a half of Girls and then I kind of fell off and was like sick of it and it's little micro world and it's sort of repetitive, self-deprecating jokes or whatever. And the show has matured in this extraordinary way. Uh, it has a very sophisticated sense of plot and character. It's really, really funny. There's an extraordinary... A uh, bottle episode that stars Matthew Reese, who's the you know the lead on The Americans. Like if you if you gave up on the show like I did and thought that the show was just like the platform from which the character of Lena Dunham emerged, check your assumptions and go back and watch <laughs> yeah. it. And like, yeah. I, I I I just go watch it. It's really really
0: really good. Um, I'm gonna go old school. I'm gonna kick it old school. Steve McCaffrey, and endorse three things really quickly. The first is last night. Uh, I put my 14-year-old daughter in a car without her knowing where we were going, drove a half an hour north uh, to Albany. I tried to fool her into thinking she was going to see you, me do an um, open mic night singing Ryan Adams songs. <laughs> she, said, da- she said, Dad, I'm embarrassed, and I'm the only one in the car. Um <laughs> <laughs> and instead, what I did is I took her to a Welcome to Night Vale live show. Uh, it's her favorite podcast. She loves it. I will say again, I've said it before, they put on a wonderful live show. They're in the midst of a very uh, extended tour. Um, I don't listen to the podcast because I don't listen to podcasts. I've now gone twice to their live show. It is a real show. It's really beautifully structured. And, um, and go with someone who likes it if you don't know it or like it it's very hard not to walk away kind of a, a, a newly minted member of the church of nightdale it was very very fun and the look on my daughter's face was of course completely worth the whole ruse uh the second thing um i really want to endorse is an essay i read this week it was the best thing i've read in a long time la review of books has this interesting kind of opening now that bob silver's rest god rest his fantastic soul is gone i mean it's 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 you know la review of books is internet only it is just the opposite of the new york review of books in every way right so it's raffish uh it finds younger unexpected talent from various places its tone is tends to shift um you know it's it's uh, L- uh new york review of books deserves all of the encomia that, that, that it's received over the years it it's wonderful kind of slightly demonic twin is the LA Review of Books. They ran an essay this week called Post-Interest Politics, a writer that I've never heard of named Faisal Devji. It is a beautifully argued, I mean, it's getting at a very difficult question, which is what precisely in a world of melting boundaries are elites, constitute elites, political parties, and how are political parties an instrument of the desires of elites? And if Borders and boundaries and identities are melting thanks to globalism to the extent they are. Is a political party really an, a cogent instrument of anybody's desires, the donor class or the populist? you know uh, urges that it's that they're supposedly channeling it's it's very smart on these questions while being somewhat agnostic about them it, it it takes for granted that we can't know the answer yet but it raised exactly the right questions in a way that i hadn't seen before in addition to which it is exquisitely well written this is a writer slate should reach out to um uh, absolutely i thought it was a beautifully clear lucid but teasingly open um essay and then the final thing is that there's a, a guitar technique called Travis Picking, and it's the next thing I have to try to learn as a guitarist, but it, it it may just require real musical skill that I don't have. But I wanted to point to two songs that are beautiful examples of it that are written in the same spirit. There's, uh, I've endorsed one before by Blaze Foley called Clay Pigeons, the version that's live in Austin. Blaze Foley was a guy who wandered the streets of Austin. People begged him to get into the studio and cut records, and he wouldn't do it. He was too much of a... You know, Fuck up, I guess. I mean, he just was a troubled soul, but he did record this one live record. It is unbelievably good. Clay Pidge is one of the greatest songs ever written. John Prine covered it. It's a great example. His Travis picking is really, really beautiful. It takes very simple chords, but because of the syncopation of the picking, um, uh, makes them sound kind of a little kind of american baroque and and country and complex they're great a very similar song written under very similar circumstances is blues run the game by jackson c frank another american who could not get his shit together and who had to be dragged into the studio made one record and he recorded this classic song very similar in structure and spirit blues run the game's been covered by everybody find the original version jackson c frank i mean clay pigeons and blues run the game are two songs that could make up a All of your listening for a week, I highly recommend them. They're amazing. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liktai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gapfest is part of the Panoply Network Check out our entire roster At uh, panoply.fm That's panoply.fm Our Twitter feed is at For Julia Turner and Danny Stevens I'm Stephen Metcalf Thank you so much for joining us And we'll see you soon
2: I'm tired of running around Looking for answers to questions That I already know I could build me a castle of memories Just to have somewhere to go Count the days and the nights that it takes to get back in the saddle again Feed the pigeons some clay